We can turn with in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We did a series in the summer called Context, Context, Context. I looked at notorious passages that are taken out of context in God's word. Often people use them for things that the text does not mean. Today, we're going to look at 2 Timothy 2 verses 14 through 19. While it's not a notorious text, it also gives us perhaps a good template for how we ought to interpret God's word, how we ought to think through how we read God's word. So it is not a text taken out of context, but helps us avoid taking texts out of context. So 2 Timothy, uh, we're going to look at verse 14 through 19 this morning, but I will read to verse 26 to set the, set the context for us. So uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of the sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. They overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for your church. Thank you that Christ is the head of the body and Christ really is the one who builds his church. And we're thankful that after leading captivity captive, he did give gifts to his church, namely men. And we're thankful, oh God, we see apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors. And we pray, oh God, that you would raise up men who would be approved workers, men who would be tested and proven to have the gifts and graces, oh God, and that they would know how to rightly divide your word. We also pray, O oh God, in general, that we would be a people who rightly divides your word as well. That as we read it, that we would see what it is you have for us, not trying to read into it what we wish, but to understand what you have to say to us in your word. Thank you for men who've gone before. Thank you for the things that we see in the scriptures for how we ought to interpret it, O oh God. And even so often, sometimes we can get things wrong, O oh God. We pray that we would always be reformed by your word to better understand what the scriptures say, better understand sound doctrine, for we have much to learn, we have much to grow in, O oh God. And so we pray that you'd forgive us for our arrogance, please forgive us for our hubris, please forgive us for thinking we know more than we ought. So we ask, O oh God, you help us as we come, that we would read your word more, that we would love it more, that we would read theology more, that we would love it more, that we would love preaching, O oh God and that we would be encouraged and nourished by what your word has 
to save for us. So we pray, O oh God, that your word would go forth and not return void, as it has among many brethren throughout history, as it does in many parts of the world. We pray, O oh God, and we praise you that the word of God is not chained, namely that Christ is the risen King, that Christ lived, died, and rose again. And we pray, O oh God, that there is power in your word. There is power to save. There is power to sanctify. There is power to work. And we know, O oh God, it's not by the power of the preacher, but it's by the power of the spirit and your word. So we pray, O oh God, that your spirit would give us illumination from on high to better understand what your word is saying here. As we consider a worker approved, as we consider a firm foundation, may we know better what to look for and know better how to interpret your scriptures. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when we come to God's word, when we come to the Christian life, it really is important to have a firm foundation. God's people need to be grounded in God's word, grounded in sound doctrine and good theology, so that we're not carried about to and fro by everything that we hear. So we don't be allured by things that might sound good, but in reality are actually detrimental to our faith, detrimental to our health, detrimental to the people of God. We want to build our house upon the rock rather than the house upon sand. And certainly truth is that house upon the rock. And certainly the house of sand emerges when context is ignored. And one of the purposes, hopefully, for this summer series was that we learn how to read God's word together. Hopefully, as I preach, hopefully we learn how to read God's word together. You're learning intuitively how we might interpret what God has for us in his scriptures. Because you see, again, theology matters. And theology mattered to the Apostle Paul. Second Timothy is his last letter. It's the last thing he writes while he is in prison. So someone who writes his last words, we ought to pay attention to what he has to say. And one of the problems that begins to emerge or has emerged even during when Paul was living was the problem of false teachers. And so Paul knows when he dies, there's going to be a power vacuum. He knows when he dies, people, false teachers might be ready to pounce. And so what does he say to Timothy? Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words that I taught you. Timothy, preach the word. Paul's last words to Timothy is all about protection, is all about the truth, is all about making sure that the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth, advances in the truth of the gospel that Christ lived died and rose again because the reality is false teaching heresy can spread like a cancer that's the image that is used here by the apostle paul to talk about heresy and false teaching that was prevalent at the church of ephesus where timothy was and that's why we need solid teaching solid teaching nourishes the word of god strengthens the word of god feeds us but heresy does the opposite heresy rots Heresy brings about disease. Heresy brings ruin to the people of God. Heresy turns one away from their hope in the true and living God. So the warning here is not to be carried about by, to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but rely upon the true teaching, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 through 19, Paul charges Timothy to be an approved worker in the firm foundation of God's word. The emphasis is on the church and how it functions as the pillar and ground of truth. And the emphasis seems to be, at least what I believe is going on in 2 Timothy 2, is primarily focusing on ministers. Ones who've been called, ones who've been set apart, 
one who, ones who've exhibited the gifts and graces requisite to being a preacher of God's word. But there still is certainly good application for the people of God as we go through, but it really is in the context of what we look for in a minister. So he wants Timothy to be an approved versus unapproved worker in the firm foundation of God's word, to be grounded in that stable message rather than focusing in on things that are unstable. And so we'll look at this under three headings this morning. First of all, a stable worker, verses 14 and 15. Secondly, an unstable message, verses 16 through 18. Then lastly, a firm foundation, verse 19. So a stable worker, verses 14 and 15. An unstable message, verses 16 through 18. And a firm foundation, verse 19. So let's first look at a stable worker in verses 14 and 15. And notice he says in verse 14, remind them of these things. That is, he wants Timothy to remind fellow laborers, men in the ministry, about the important things that the uh, the preacher or teacher must rely upon. And these things certainly can include what comes after in verses 14 and following, but also includes what came before. In verses 8 through 13, he reminds to remind them of the gospel message. Remind, remember verse 8, that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And the reason he wants to highlight that is because there were false teachers who were uh, turning men, turning people away from that very thing, especially as it pertains to the resurrection from the dead. And he wants to remind Timothy, he wants Timothy to remind fellow laborers that your emphasis needs to be the word. Your emphasis needs to be the gospel of free and sovereign grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So certainly that is what they need to be reminded of. They also need to be reminded about what a minister ought to look like, what a minister's task is, because so often ministers can forget that. So often pastors can forget their role and purpose to which God has called them. So he says, remind them of these things. How? By charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit. So Timothy receives this solemn warning. He's going to then give this solemn warning to pastors. Do not turn away before the Lord. Do not strive about with these words to no profit that bring ruin to the hearers. But notice who the pastor ultimately serves, God Almighty. I'm not saying there isn't in time and space in the structure of the church, which I believe is congregational, meaning that is the local church has the power. Members vote in pastors. Members vote when it comes to excommunication and discipline. Members vote when it comes to big financial things. Remember when they members who vote pastors in, they endow them with power and God endows them with power. So it's not saying or bestows upon them power. So it's not saying there isn't that very thing. There aren't checks and balances. Unfortunately, ministers fall. Ministers can do terrible things in which those things must be dealt with. But ultimately, who the minister must please above all is God Almighty. And hopefully as he pleases God Almighty, hopefully it's a benefit and a boon to the people that he is called to minister to. But he is ultimately before God. And Timothy is charged similarly in chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, Timothy, 
before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is before God, the minister must be faithful to what God has called him to do. And the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 is one of ambassador. An ambassador does not speak his own message. An ambassador does not say what he wishes to say, but an ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of the king, one who heralds the message that the king has for his people. That's what a minister must be. That's what a pastor must be. I'm not saying there can't be differences in things indifferent, but he must be true to God's word, especially to the things that are essential to everlasting life. And so he charges them before God notice what they're not supposed to do, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of hearers. Words are important, right? Jesus Christ is the word and the word speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Words have import, words have meaning, especially when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is something proclaimed. The gospel is something that we say, Christ lived, died and rose again. And God is pleased by the spirit to work with the word to save. God is pleased to work with the word. There's something supernatural that happens as the word of God goes forth. So words are very important, aren't they? And if a minister gets up in a pulpit and talks about things that have no import, it isn't just a neutral thing. He's going to bring ruin to his hearers. And he uses the language of vain janglings, or he will in verse 16, We've already seen, or we saw this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. Men who, spree, who are proud, who know nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. There are sometimes things that we don't need to focus our attention on. We only have so much time in life, and so we ought not to focus on genealogies that have no import or meaning. We ought not to focus. Sometimes there are preachers who get up and they preach songs, top 40 songs, they get up and they preach movies. They put a movie on screen and unpack what that says. Vain janglings and babblings. It must be the word of God that we cling to and hold to in our Christian walk and what the minister must cling to and hold to as he uh, engages in the task God has called him to do. Even too, when you consider the Trinitarian heresies that arise, when you consider Arianism, that taught that the son was created, that taught that the son was less than God, it was based on one letter. There's a Greek word that was separated by one eye. One, uh, one uh, homoousius says that God, the son is of the same substance as the father, or homoousius, one letter that says the son is of like substance of the father. You see the difference? One letter changes the meaning. So words have import. Words are important. Uh, and sometimes small, minute, speculative things like these teachers we're teaching have no biblical backing and do not need to be focused on. God's word must be focused upon. And notice the result if one focuses in on words with no profit. To the ruin of the hearers. I'm not very good at illustrations, so I'm glad when the Bible has built-in illustrations. Talking housing imagery here. Rather than being built up, you're being ruined. House being raised to the ground. House growing decrepit. 
a house growing and mold is growing in it, so it's going to be destroyed and rot. If one focuses on things that have no value, that's what's going to happen to the hearer. Notice, hearers are going to be ruined. Hearers are going to fall by the wayside. Hearers are going to rot and be raised, according to the imagery here. Do not charge them to strive about things that have no profit. But you, the reminder for Timothy and the reminder for all ministers of God's word, what an approved worker must be, verse 15. Be diligent, be diligent, be diligent. And what's interesting, this is the positive affirmation of the charge. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. And in the preceding verses, in verses uh, three through seven, talking to teachers, uses three images to describe what a minister must be. Use the image of a soldier, and then soldier, a soldier enlists to serve the king, to serve his master. We have an athlete. An athlete plays by the rules to win, so he must do what God has called him to do and not go to the right or to the left. And then we also have the farmer, three. Be diligent. Preaching the word of God is hard. Mining the word of God is hard. Reading Greek and Hebrew, brethren, is hard. Reading theology is difficult. That's why we need to be diligent in it. Because if we're not diligent in it, there could be ruin. That's why the pastor needs to spend most of his time preparing sermons. That's why it's good that pastors have a reading day. So they're edified and built up. Now, when it comes to Spurgeon... Spurgeon was just in a league of his own. He just fell from heaven and could just preach, right? Not everybody's Spurgeon that way. But you realize Spurgeon read volumes throughout the week, so much so that he was so edified by what he read. There was like an urban myth or a legend that he started to dream. He started to preach while he was in his sleep, and his wife wrote down what he had to say, and he preached that the next day. Now, I don't know if that's the best way to prepare sermons, but the point is he reads, he read, he was diligent, even with his extraordinary gifts that he certainly had. And a minister must be diligent to read the word of God, to be in God's word, to pray, and to be uh, 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 in sound theology, so that he might be a worker approved. God's approval is the only one ultimately that matters. He must be to present yourself approved to God, who does uh, 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 rightly dividing a, uh, who, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, not ashamed of the truth, not ashamed of the message, not ashamed of Christ, not ashamed to suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all this language, diligent, present yourself approved, requires testing. Testing when it comes to seeking out a minister, right? They must be a minister according to 1 Timothy 3 and according to Titus 1 and according to 2 Timothy 2 verses 20 through 26 and 14 through 19. Brethren, that takes time. There's a reason that ministers aren't supposed to be novices in the faith. There's a reason that ministers are hopefully have some theological acumen and ability and they've read a little bit. There's reasons for that. We don't just throw people in because uh, that can bring ruin to hearers. 
That is not a good thing. It is, it is a serious thing when you consider what he says. Time tested to be able to show that he can be a minister. But once he becomes a minister, he continues to be tested. Do I still have the gifts requisite to be a minister? Do I still have the graces requisite to be a minister? A minister must always grow in them and examine himself. Otherwise, you have big time problems, right? And you see ministers fall. Ministers fall under sound theology. Who are, you think, well, they got sound theology. That's, we must always be diligent in these things. That's why if you have desire to preach or to teach, A, be patient, and B, think of something else to do. I'm serious. Find something else. Don't do this. This is very hard. This is very difficult because of the weight with what Paul says. Approve yourself before God a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And notice specifically, he draws out a specific reason for why he does not need to be ashamed and why he ought to, what, how he ought to approve himself before God. Rightly dividing the word of truth. A minister must rightly divide the word of truth. A minister must not stray, the language there is of straight path, must not stray toward wordy debates or impious talks. Or another way to translate this word is to expound it soundly. Not read into it, but expound what God has for us. Shape rightly. Preach fearlessly. There's actually a word in the Bible, this word, that teaches us we ought to exposit God's word. When we come to God's word, do not ask, what does this mean for me? We'll eventually get to the application, but don't do that first. You ask, what does God have to say? What is God trying to communicate here? What does God want us to see in the scriptures? What, is he, what does he want us to understand as we come to his word? Do we rightly divide and understand what he is saying? But a minister must be able to rightly divide it. A minister must be able to exposit it. And hopefully God's people, as we read it, we read it and go, what does this mean? What is God trying to say for us? Because if not, it could ruin hearers. It could be a heresy that spreads like cancer, and it can increase in ungodliness, which we'll talk about under our second point in just a moment. But one application from this first section, I think, is a good reminder for ministers. A minister must properly, rightly divide the word of God. That is his task. It is a protection for hearers. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4 as well. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. Similar sort of thing in Titus 2, 7 and 8. He says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent of you may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So character and ability must go hand in hand. Now, this is where I just want to talk about what does it exactly look like when we come to God's word? How do we interpret it? Well, there are three things, or three ways in which we ought to do this, and men have done this of old, and men have also not done this of old, and it's led to problems. First of all, we need to understand what the words say. 
God speaks to us in baby talk by way of words. So we must understand what God is saying in the context, not ripping things out of context, but understand what they say in the context, understand what words mean in context. That's why I think word studies are a little overrated. You know, you find a word, you try to find its meaning in all the different places that can be helpful, but sometimes we make so much out of that, that we forget to understand that sometimes a word can have four different meanings depending on the context, right? So you have to read it in its context. Now, I'm not saying you have to understand Greek for all of this. I'm just saying, as you come to God's word, what does it mean in context? What is, under, what is going on here? We also second, so grammar, words, sentences, that's helpful. But so that's one thing. The second thing is history. God works in time and space and uses men at certain times in history <laughs> And so it's not wrong to understand the history behind certain things, like what's going on in 2 Timothy. What's the heresy? What's the problem? What's occurring? Those things are all very important that then we might be able to have a way to apply it to our hearts and lives, because there's nothing new under the sun. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, God still speaks through it. And the reality is, even though we might have more technology, we might be able to drive cars, we still have the same sins and same problems and same heresies that arise. So it's important to understand the history. So grammar and history. But we don't just stop there, right? We must also recognize the divine author in all of this. Certainly the human author, but God works through that human author to inscripturate what he has to say. And what's so blessed is that 40 authors God has used are all talking about him, are all talking about Christ. And so when we come to understand the theological interpretation of that, what that means is, what does God have us to say? Or perhaps to narrow it down further, how does the New Testament interpret the Old? How does the New Testament interpret the Old? You see, theology is important. I'm going to talk about this more under our second point, which we'll get there in just a second. But the New Testament writers take things that the Old Testament writers who only knew by shadow and apply them to Christ. They take and give it a spiritual meaning that is by the Holy Spirit, finding a fuller meaning with what comes to pass in the New Testament. And what's interesting is Paul does this in Galatians 4. And everybody's going to have a cow. I'm just kidding. You're not going to have a cow. But what's interesting is the word allegory is used in Galatians 4. I'm not saying we can't, or there aren't times that we go without our, or we uh, exceed the bounds which God has given to us. I'm not saying there are times we over-spiritualize certain things. But if the New Testament writers are saying, look, this applies to Christ. Look, this applies to the church. Look, this applies to something related to him. Can we not do that? And so what's he doing in Galatians 4? Jerusalem above and Jerusalem below using Hagar and Sarah. Jerusalem above and Jerusalem below to give her fuller meaning to what with what went on with Sarah and Hagar. The free Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem versus the one that is of below. And there are many other places in which the Bible does this. Deuteronomy 18, who is the prophet? Acts 3, Jesus is the prophet. That is perfectly legitimate. When we come to read the Old Testament, we see what do the words mean, but what is it that those words mean then mean? Do you get that? <laughs> what do the words symbolize? And then what do the, uh, what, uh, what, uh, 
what do the, uh, do the words that those words or letters symbolize then mean? That is, when we read, okay, temple in the Old Testament, what does that mean? But then how, what does that mean about Christ? That's an important way of interpreting God's word. Otherwise, it's incomplete. So that's why theology is very important. Grammar, history, and theology. That we might have a stable message. Otherwise, there's going to be an unstable message. Notice verses 16 and 18. This all has ethical import because we teach right doctrine leads to right practice, but also unstable doctrine leads to unstable practice. Notice verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. So we've already talked about no profit, vain janglings, babblings. That's what Paul calls them here. The reality is it's already in the church. This is remedial. He's trying to deal with it now. There's already false teachers there. There's already problems there. So he needs to deal with it. So shun these profane and idle babblings. And notice, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Right doctrine leads to right practice. This is why theology matters. Exegesis, that is reading what got out of the Bible, what God has for us. We understand the flow of the text. That's important. There's also, again, doctrine and theology. Theology helps us deal with the claims of what the Bible says. That's why theology is important as well. We read in the Old Testament, God is one, right? Then we read in the New, the Father is God, but Jesus is saying he's God. He's saying I am. And the Spirit seems to have attributes of God and doing the works of God. And he's also called God in Acts chapter 5. So how do we deal with that? Trinity. (laughs) You see, that's why theology is important and theology is helpful for us because it isn't just knowledge. It also hopefully keeps us in line because unsound doctrine can lead to ungodliness and the ungodliness is based on a lack of uh, reverence and a recognition of the one true God and his ways. That's why church history is important. I'm not saying there aren't problems in history. I'm not saying there aren't errors in history. I'm not saying there aren't confessions or or creeds that I disagree with. But for the most part, they keep us grounded, don't they? So we're not carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And think about the saying of a biblicist. I just need my Bible in me. How arrogant that you do not consider what men for 2,000 years have said and that you might be wrong. Oh, is that a thing that crosses our minds sometimes? We might be wrong. That's why, brethren, we need to keep reading. That's why the importance of the confessions and creeds, that we might understand, you know, the doctrines of old. Yes, again, as I said, there's some that I disagree with, but that's why theology is important as well. So we're not carried away by heresy. And even, too, when the Bible, the New Testament was being written, what grounded them, brethren? Theology. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. What's the sound words? Christ lived, died, and rose again. If anybody comes along who says Christ didn't live, die, or rise again, you knew what to do. You knew how to deal with it. That's why systematic theology is vital. Theology helps us. Theology can keep us grounded. Theology can keep us within the ballpark. That's why I'm very thankful for the education I have had. It was an incredible privilege. 
I can't tell you how much it's helped me a lot. I probably would not be in the pulpit right now if it wasn't for that. I'm, I'm dead serious when I say that. The preparation that I had, I would not be in the pulpit right now if it wasn't for that very thing. I still have a lot to learn, still much we have to read, but uh, theology very much helps us. That's why I appreciate our confession so very much. And what's interesting is sometimes we think we read five sentences and we got it. I once heard a preacher say that you need to read five books to get an introductory understanding of something. Five books. And how often we think, you know, okay, five sentences, I can be a preacher. No, you young guys, again, anybody who's aspiring, I'm not trying to scare you away, but I am kind of trying to scare you away from the ministry too. Seriously, consider something else. This is not an easy thing. It's hard. It's difficult. And sometimes pastors just have fainting fits. I love Spurgeon because he talks about fainting fits and lectures to my students. You know what a fainting fit is? A pastor who's downcast for no reason. And there are times where a pastor is just like, I'm crying and I have no reason why, or I'm downtrodden, heavy laden. Why? This is not an easy thing, brethren, an easy thing, young man. Certainly, if you have the desire, that's a good thing. But seriously, consider anything else to do. Five books on an introductory level understood that leads to an introductory level understanding. Not everybody can do that that way. It's a difficult thing. So it is, theology still is important. I hope I don't scare anybody away from reading theology with this. Still come on Saturday when we do our theology, but, but, but you know, it is hard and difficult. We'll do it together. So theology is important because without it, ungodliness will increase to more ungodliness and we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go through but increase to ungodliness increase to wicked living uh, that's a problem but also verse 17 another reason why they need to shun it their message will spread like a cancer spread easily it's already spread within the church that's why Paul still wants approved workers not unapproved workers that can do a lot of damage and he goes on to give an example of one or teachers, false teachers who've spread their doctrine like a cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Hymenaeus was excommunicated uh, in 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, still causing headaches and problems. Philetus, this is the first and only mention of him, but they are heretics who are causing problems in the church. Sometimes I wish heretics would just leave and not cause problems in the church, but that doesn't always happen. Notice, Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying, and this is the substance of their false teaching, the resurrection is already past, and notice, they have overthrown the faith of some. They're saying the resurrection has already occurred. Again, the doctrine, their doctrine, false doctrine, is the resurrection is already past. What they probably taught probably a mixture or influenced by Greek understanding of the, the final state. And for them, a Greek person would have taught that it was a spiritual everlasting life, right? What does the New Testament teach? Everlasting, the resurrection of the body. You see, when it comes, if we die before Christ comes back, our souls will go to be with God. Our bodies go in the grave. But when Christ comes back, body and soul will be reunited. Isn't that a blessed thing to look forward to, brethren? And so here come Hymenaeus and Philetus saying, nah, and it's based on their, uh, another doctrine, the spirit. The spiritual things are good, matter is bad. And so if the spiritual things are good and matter is bad, it leads them to what? Say that 
the resurrection is already passed because it's mainly a spiritual thing rather than one of embodiment. And that caused problems. It, caused, it overthrew the faith of some because sometimes it can sound alluring, but they're so nice to me. He talks with such a calming voice. He did all these things for me. It sounds complex, isn't it? We can be so allured by such things. Some have been ruined by it, by it. And it ruins them when it comes to their faith, when it comes to the doctrine, when it comes to a lot of different things. And notice, we'll just kind of think through some of the doctrines that are affected by this. So spirit is good, matter is bad. What's that due to the doctrine of creation? God created the world in the space of six days and said that it was very good. I understand there's sin in this world, but that doesn't change the fact that what God made is good, right? Distorted, fallen, certainly, but doesn't change the fact I'm still made in the image of God. Doesn't change the fact that when I'm resurrected, I, it shall be a bodily resurrection. So it can have implications for creation, implications for who we are as man, what we're made up of, body and soul. Those are problems. And then that has implications for the incarnation. What did Christ assume? What nature did he assume, dear brethren, when he came down? Was it just an appearance as a man, or did he, was he actually man? Was he fully God and fully man? Because if he's not fully man, then what salvation do we have, dear brother? One who is like us in every way, yet without sin. Then that has implications for the doctrine of the resurrection. Well, spirit's good, matter bad. Well, what does it mean about the resurrection then? Did, was Christ resurrected? And if he wasn't, what does that say about our future hope? What does that mean for us? See, all these things are important for us. And that also has implications for how we live as the resurrected people, which we're going to talk about tonight with the Spirit. Do you see how cancerous this can be? See how much it can rot someone's mind? And that's why it's a warning for the minister, but also a warning for God's people. Are you in your Bibles, brethren? Are you present under preaching? Think about that for a sec. Five times before you get an introductory level understanding of the Bible. How many of us have read the Bible five times? See, brethren, we have a privilege that we have 15 of them on our shelves. We can listen to them. And we don't. It is what causes us to grow. Preaching is what causes us to grow. As the word of God is not changed, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Another thing that's important too, do we really believe that God's word is living, right? Do we believe that is God breathed? Do we believe that when we come to his word and we come to its preaching of it, do we believe he's really speaking? In Romans 10, when it comes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but he's talking about the one who calls upon God through faith, but he says, and how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of, we should take away the of, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Christ is still that prophet who speaks to us through his word. Now we need the spirit to help us understand it. That's why it's so important to be under it because something important happens when the word of God is proclaimed. And I believe there are other true churches that proclaim the word of God. I believe that there are churches who are not churches at all, who do not proclaim the word of God. We must understand that God really does speak. There is an action happening as the word of God goes forth. He really is working. 
He really is saving. He really is changing. And he really is hardening. The word of God goes forth and does not return void. He either softens or he hardens. Something happens when we worship. That's why we need to be in it. That's why we need to be under it. That's why we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves. Otherwise, the people of God will be malnourished. And when you're malnourished, we're not really good for anything, are we? Because we're so hungry. (laughs) We don't have the sustenance that we need. So we must avoid unstable messages. Because we need to rely upon our firm foundation. Verse 19. Notice he says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. And perhaps a question arises, perhaps from those reading, if there is danger in the church, how can the church exist? Well, there's discipline. There is Matthew 18 that deals with discipline. There is the fact and promise that Christ is the protector of his church and will always be that. Towner says Christ is present as a protector and redeemer, but also as a judge who will vindicate his truth and his people. And he still is this very thing, but some might question that if there's heresy and false doctrine that arises. That's why, again, Paul in his dying day says, stand on the foundation, this solid foundation, having this seal. Having this stamp of ownership is what seal means. We'll talk about what it means with respect to the spirit this evening. But here we see this seal. Notice election and evidence. The Lord knows those who are his. If there's problems in the church, if there's heresy arises, God knows those who are his. And the elect shall be called forth. The elect shall be saved. And the elect shall persevere. Even in the face of wicked men. Even in the face of false teachers, there shall always be a true church. And then he also says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. There's going to be an evidence. One who names the name of Christ shall shun these false teachers, shall shun these wicked men. And what's interesting is there is an allusion back to Numbers chapter 16. Don't worry, we're almost done, I promise. Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, we have Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they rose up against Moses with 250, uh, with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation. They gathered together, verse 3, against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? They're trying to self-engineer their uh, their way into leadership. It's not a good thing to do, by the way, even in the church of Christ. Uh, And so, verse 4, he heard this. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That, That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. It's in the context of rebelling against uh, those chosen leaders by God. It's in the context of rebelling against Moses. That is what Paul is applying to the situation with Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're challenging the, 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 the teachers. They're challenging the ones chosen. They're challenging Timothy, probably partly because he was young and they were older and they didn't like that. And it is akin to the idea of... Moses being challenged by these ones. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, those who are yours know who they are. 
There's going to be false teachers. You will know them by their fruits, but God knows those who are truly his. And of course, God obviously sides with Moses because he's the one who called Moses. He didn't call Korah and Dathan and Abiram. They were not chosen to be the prophets. They were not chosen to preach. They were not chosen that way. And so God deals with them. But also, when it says there, those who name the name of Christ shall not depart or shall depart from iniquity, that's also in verse 26. And he rose and went to Dathan, verse 25, and Abiram and the elders of Israel follow, uh, followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of their sins, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Depart from them. Depart from iniquity. Depart from false teaching. Depart from ungodliness. Depart from all of those things. All those things uh, do nothing except rot. Those things do nothing except to, 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 to bring uh, people down. That's why we must stick to the word of God and be patient when calling pastors. That's why we must not be hasty in laying hands upon someone. I know sometimes, I sometimes get impatient. You know, it's been five years and we need another elder, right? Yes, we do. But brother, we're not just going to do it because there's a need. We're going to do it with one who's been rightly called by God and approved and time-tested and proved some theological acumen and shows forth some ability. We're not going to do it until then. And I'm going to give you, let you in on a little secret. I'm not trying to engage in some sort of secret mission, but there is a secret mission I've been engaging in for four and a half years, but now it's out in the open. When I ask you what you're reading, I'm paying attention to what you're reading. I want to know what you're reading. I want to know what you're understanding. And I'm like, hmm, what are they reading? Is it good? Is it sound? Is it interesting? Maybe they could be an elder, right? I am asked. I'm, I am doing that. And Another thing, too, is even with this theology, again, it's first. Anybody who wants to study theology, anybody who wants to understand sound doctrine more, we can do that. I also want to see who's reading and doing the reading and who's paying attention to what is said in the books. Those things are all very important. So now it's out there. Now it's out in the open. Now you know I've had my antennas up for four and a half years, and I'm waiting. And brethren, that's a good thing, hopefully, that you know, I'm thinking that way, and you ought to be thinking that way too, because we ought to look for time-tested men who have gifts and graces to be called as ministers of God. Now, in closing, there's a couple encouraging things we can draw from this text. The first is the assurance for the church. It's not outside the plan of God that there's heresy in the world. (laughs) It's not. And sometimes, and most of the time when heresy arises, it helps the church refine and define the things of God more precisely. So if there's a silver lining to heresy, that certainly is one of those things. It's not outside the plan of God, but God uses it for good. Secondly, it's also an assurance for Christians. In this world that is very unstable, that feels very unstable a lot of the time, and perhaps a life in which we feel very unstable a lot of the time, there is an anchor in those shifting times, isn't there? God and his word. And when there are times we are forgetful of his promises, come back to his word and be under the preaching, 
be under the teaching, be reminded of what he has to say. This ought to be an encouraging assurance for us. There is hope in life and death. That someone comes along and says, there's no resurrection. You come back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You come back to what he says in 2 Timothy 2, that there is the resurrection from the dead that awaits God's people in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. And thirdly, we see God's mercy and forgiveness. In verses 20 through 26, God leaves open the possibility that some of these false teachers can repent and find mercy. In verse 24, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. False teachers can find mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ while they still have breath. If perhaps God grants them repentance. Isn't God so gracious and merciful to grant repentance to such men like this? And isn't God gracious and merciful to grant repentance to you and I when we got doctrines so very wrong so many times? And even too, when it comes to all the sins that we have committed, this is what God does in his gospel and in his word is he saves sinners through the preaching of the resurrection from the dead in which we have an inheritance purchased for us by Christ, and we don't deserve any of it. This is why the gospel message is so vital for us. It saves, it nourishes us, it builds us up, and gives us a firm foundation in shifting times. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the blessed word. Thank you that the word truly is God-breathed and inscripturated. And truly, O oh God, it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you, O oh God, that your sacred writings, both old and new, are able to make one wise unto salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that we would cling to this very truth, cling to the very gospel that Christ lived, died, and rose again that we would not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we would not overstep our bounds when it comes to what you have to say in your word. We do thank you, O God, for your word. Thank you for the apostles and the prophets. Thank you for our Christ who still speaks in the word. Thank you, O God, for men of old who wrestled with doctrines that are difficult for us and made sure they did not fancy you what you to be, what you are not. Thank you that we can stand upon them, O oh God. Thank you that we can lean upon them. May we not be so arrogant to think we can do it on our own. But we certainly need your spirit, and we certainly need men of old to help us. Thank you, O oh God, that creeds and confessions are not infallible, but they help us understand what your word says. Help us understand the truth of your infallible word. So please, O oh God, help us to have a right understanding as we come to your word. Help your ministers to rightly divide your word, O oh God. And we pray, O oh God, that you would raise up faithful men to be ministers in your church, in this church, in other churches, 
Keep the men who have been raised up to be faithful to what the scriptures say, faithful in gifts and graces. And we know, oh God, you were able to do such things. And we thank you, O God, for the mercy and forgiveness found in this blessed truth, that there is forgiveness for sinners in Christ. And so we pray, O God, if there are any here today who do not know you, save their soul, we pray. For there are blessed things that happen when we worship. There is the strengthening of your saints, but there is the salvation of sinners. And we pray, O God, that sinners would be saved this day. So be with us now by your spirit. Help us as we go into the world. Be glorified in all that we do, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.